0: If you would, go ahead and open your Bibles to Luke. If you're uh, visiting with us this morning, we've been trekking our way through Luke, and we're two and a half years in, I think, and we're all the way at Luke 22. And we're about halfway through 22. It's a long chapter, it's one of the longer ones, but we're, we'll be looking at verses 24 through 30 this morning. And so while you're turning there, I'll try to recap a bit. Okay. If you'll remember, over the past few weeks, Luke has been kind of taking us up into the upper room. Into the upper room where the Passover meal was being celebrated with Jesus and his disciples. It was a it was a place of hiding. If you remember, it was a place of hiding because Jesus was being hunted. He was being betrayed, and so he had to get there in secret. So you can imagine the mood when they get into the room, that it's like this secret hiding place up in the upper room where they're sharing a very special meal together. It's a, but it was also a place of celebration because of what they were celebrating. They were celebrating the Passover meal. So if you remember what Passover is, it's the celebration of God redeeming Israel out of Egypt through the sacrificial blood of a spotless lamb, and the active faith of the people as they pasted that blood on the doorpost of their homes. But it was also, up in the upper room, a place of reformation. Place of reformation, meaning Luke has filled us in on Jesus' eager desire to institute a new covenant. A new covenant ratified in his blood, And it would reform Passover into what we now celebrate today as communion or the Lord's Supper. It was a a time of reformation and transition from an old celebration to a new celebration. From looking past to looking, at this point, forward to what Jesus would do for them. That was the whole reason, really. That was the whole reason of it, and the point of it, was to point his disciples to his death. To his death. That his death would be for them. That he would be, as it were, the Passover lamb. He would be the final Passover lamb. And Jesus in that would fulfill Passover. He would fulfill the type and the shadow of Passover that pointed always to him. As the lamb. And he would call them in this moment to remember. 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 Keep doing this. This is not a one and done moment. Keep doing this. He wants them to focus on him, to remember him. Verse 19 says this, do this in what? Remembrance of me. He wants to dial their focus in on him. The call was to remember him, think upon him, focus on him. But what we will see is that the disciples were, their minds were so far from Jesus they were so distracted that everything he's saying wouldn't land until much later they were distracted by delusions of grandeur and my so my prayer this morning is that each and every one of us would recognize our innate desire to focus on self even here on Sunday morning what others people what others are thinking of me What I think of other people in the room. What's going on in my day today. What's going on in my life right now. The devil wants to snatch the word from you by using those things to distract you. As he did here with the disciples, they were distracted. My prayer for us this morning is that by the spirit, you would join me in praying that we would kill those desires right now to focus on self that we would plead with him, plead with him that we would focus our eyes and our hearts on Jesus, that his words would be meaningful to us and that we would grab onto them with a firm grip this morning. We would seek to do that this morning. May it be the desires of our hearts, first and foremost, that his word would reveal himself to us, that we would desire to see who Jesus is, And that requires prayer. So let's do that. Let's do that. Let's pray as we go to God's word this morning. Father, I ask, Lord, on behalf of this body, and myself included, that none none of us would be distracted, that you would take the eyes of our heart, Lord, and put blinders on us, on all the things that wanted to distract us and help us to zero in on you this morning, you, who you are, your glory, your unparalleled love and compassion and, and discipline to go to the cross like you did and missional living that you had and still have. God, we are so tempted, even as we sit under the preaching of your word and under the music sung about you to think about us. Please, Lord, help us to focus on you this morning. Give me the words, oh God. Give me the words that would glorify your name in the hearts of your people. In Jesus' name, amen. So you should be at Luke 22 by now. Like I said, we're going to be focusing on verses 24 through 30, but for context, I'm going to start in verse 21. So read along with me, starting in verse 21 uh, through 30. It says, But behold, the hand of the one betraying me is with mine on the table. For indeed, the Son of Man is going as it has been determined but woe to that man by whom he is betrayed. And they began to discuss among themselves which one of them it might be who was going to do this thing. And there arose also a dispute among them as to which one of them was regarded as the greatest. And he said to them, the kings of the Gentiles lorded over them and those who have authority over them are called benefactors. But it is not this way with you, But the one who is greatest among you must become like the youngest and the leader like the servant. For who is greater, the one who reclines at the table or the one who serves? Is it not the one who reclines at the table? But I am among you as the one who serves. You are those who have stood by me in my trials. And just as my father has granted me a kingdom, I grant you that you may eat. And drink at my table in my kingdom, and you will sit on thrones judging the twelve tribes of Israel. Our main point this morning, and if you don't have a handout, there are some on the back table back here where you can follow along. And there's scripture references on the back of that handout as well. Okay, Our main point this morning is this. Growing in greatness... Growing in greatness comes by fixing our eyes, the eyes of our heart, on the one who is truly great. True greatness comes by fixing the eyes of our heart on the one who is truly great. So, Jesus, as we just said, instituted a new covenant. He's in the upper room, he's instituted a new covenant, he's demonstrated a new celebration. A new celebration that is to be continued on and on and on. And then he drops a bomb. He drops a big bomb on him and he says, he's going to be betrayed. He's going to be betrayed, not just betrayed, but betrayed by someone at this very table. I think it's very easy for us to think that Jesus kind of kept Judas at arm's length throughout the three years of ministry. He knew what Judas was going to do. He even said on some occasions that, did I not choose you and yet one of you is a devil, referring to Judas. He knows what Judas is going to do this whole time. This is not new revelation here in this moment. He's God, he knows all things, and he knows what's going to happen. And so I think it's easy for us to think that because he knew what Judas was going to do, that he maybe he never got too close to Judas. Maybe he kind of just kept him at arm's length. Maybe that since Jesus knew what was going to happen and that it wasn't a shock to Jesus, that maybe it didn't hurt. Maybe it didn't bother him all that much. Maybe not forget the humanity of Christ. The humanity of Christ. John 13, 21 says that Jesus, when he was telling the disciples in a parallel text in John that he was going to be betrayed, he says that he is troubled in his spirit. He was deeply troubled. It's the same word that Jesus uses when he refers to his coming death. It's the same word he uses when he sees Mary weeping over Lazarus' death. He was troubled. He was hurt. Sad. Distressed. This betrayal does not think that this was not nothing to him. It It was something to Jesus in an emotional way. I believe that in a way, he was kind of confiding in his friends. I think he was confiding in them. Yes, as a prophet, I believe he was filling them in on the truth of what was going to happen, but also demonstrating concern. I, I don't believe that Jesus said this like a stoic robot. There's no emotion in his voice. No, no look on his face of, of concern and hurt. I'm sure he said this with some form of emotion. He said he was disturbed. Grieved, He said this to his closest friends. And his closest friends, do you know what their response to this is? Self-preservation and self-exaltation. That was their response to their hurting friend. Self-preservation, self-exaltation. Our 1st subpoint is that eyes fixed on self, they leave no room for true greatness. Eyes dialed in on self leave no room for true greatness in this life. Now, in my home, we usually try to correct our children in private, but you may guess that it doesn't happen that often, Right? We try to correct our children one on one, but usually there's some other ears listening as we correct. And so you, you might imagine that as I'm correcting child one, and I'm I'm saying, you know, when you decided not to clean your room like Daddy said, that was disobedience. That was not loving. That was not trusting Daddy. Inserts child number two. I clean my room, Daddy. I clean my room. I know, but this is, this is not about you. And then child number three comes in and says, I listen, Daddy. Am I a good listener? I'm trying to do my best P voices here. But complete and unsolicited self-exaltation. Taking every opportunity to preserve, I don't want that talk from Daddy. So I'm going to make sure I, I chime in. Right? Complete, unsolicited self-preservation and self-exaltation. It's innate within us. It starts young. It starts early. And this is what we see here in our beloved disciples. Jesus had just confided in them and revealed to them how he was going to die. And the catalyst of his death would be betrayal by one of his closest friends. And they immediately run to, well, who could it be? Well, I mean, surely it's not me. It's you. Who could it be? And in verse 24, our text for today, they then transition from surely not, I'm not the worst one here, right? Self-preservation immediately into, oh, I'm the greatest. Self-exaltation. Jesus drops this information of betrayal and they immediately begin to see that their seat at this glorious table begin to slip through their fingers. Every one of them thought they were capable of betrayal and they saw the seat of the table slipping through their fingers and so they respond with self-preservation and self-exaltation. They wanted desperately to protect what they believed was theirs, namely their seat of the kingdom. It says in verse 24 that they were arguing the word is philonokia, and that philo is that, that love word that we understand, right? The Phileo, love, there's a root of it, which describes a type of arguing that demonstrates a love for conflict. I think they love to argue over this particular topic. I think they love to argue over this particular topic. We see this argument all throughout the Gospels. We see it, if you remember, I actually taught on this in Luke 9. This is somewhat of a, a same message. It's a repeated message. So we see it in Luke 9. We see it also in, in Mark 9, in a different occasion. We see even James and John's mother kind of approaching Jesus saying, well, do you think my sons could sit at your right and left hand in the kingdom? They're constantly fighting to sit at Jesus' right hand and left hand in the kingdom of God. So this was not a new argument. Their desire for greatness, though, was as the world defines greatness. Greatness. They desired greatness the way the the Jewish leadership defined greatness. You can imagine why. I'm sure they were very, very tired of just being fishermen. I'm sure they were tired of just being tax collectors or zealots or just Jews. Lowest people in the totem pole in the world society. In comes Jesus. Jesus. In comes Jesus, who says he's the Messiah, they believe him, and now, finally, there's a chance for them to be something more. So, finally, something more that they could be. They could be kings of the world alongside with Jesus, those who had a seat at the table. If you remember from Luke 14, there was a, in Luke 14, they were having a luncheon at the Pharisees' home, at one of the Pharisees' homes, and one of the people at the lunch said, blesses everybody who eats bread in the kingdom of God. In other words, blesses everyone who has that seat at the table in the banquet in the final kingdom. He's referring to the banquet where all the who's who's of God's people would be there. All the righteous would be there. And the disciples, they wanted that seat more than anything. And they saw it coming in just a few days. In just a few days from now, they had imagined Jesus was going to enter in Jerusalem, set up his kingdom, and there they would be at the right hand of the Messiah, which is what they wanted, much like what the Jewish leaders wanted, who, by the way, was their greatest influence before Jesus enters the scene. They're still being influenced by these Pharisees, the ones whom Jesus warned them of, saying, don't be like them who desire the chief seat, who want to be viewed as great by others. They're still being influenced by them. To them, true greatness, true greatness was to be regarded as great by other people. That's the word we see here in verse 24. They argued over who would be regarded. Who would be regarded as the greatest? Who would everyone else think is the greatest here at the table? Who would be the most exalted by others when we set up the kingdom? Who would be praised by others? Whose hand will be kissed most? Who do you think? And this is what pride always does. This is what pride always does. It always looks at what others thinks of them. It looks inward. It seeks to be elevated. It seeks to be honored, and it seeks to be glorified. And because of that, it seeks to preserve self. It seeks to play it safe, It seeks to be praised. That's what pride does, which this is the exact opposite of why we were made. This is the exact opposite of why you exist. We were not made to get praise. We were not made to seek praise. We were made to give praise and to point others to the one who is worthy of it. This is why you exist. It's not about you, your glory it's about him this is our human condition though and it's important that we see that in us so we can fight it this is at the very heart of sin a desire for self we're just like the disciples we love the praise of man we love to be honored We desire our way above all others, and so we put bubbles around us. We put bubbles around us. We have bubbles around our families. It's about me and my family. We fight for self-care. Got to get my self-care in. We think constantly of our own felt needs, our own careers, our next vacation, our troubles, our own personal sanctification. It's just me and Jesus. it's just about you and Jesus, then I don't know what Jesus you're talking to. It's not about just you and Jesus. It's not about your own personal life. We are all the time, we are all the time tempted to shrink the whole world down to the size of our own little individual life. The Whole world revolves around Wolf family. That's my temptation. Am I alone here? Is it just me? All of which, all of which we just mentioned are rooted, again, in self exaltation, a desire to self preserve. But we, hear me, hear me, we were made for something greater than that. We were made for something greater. All of creation points to God, doesn't it? All of creation points to God. The heavens declare the glory of God. The trees and the fields and the stars. The birds, the oceans and the moon and the galaxies. All of it, all of the order of the universe, point to and shout with the loudest possible voice, there's a God, there's a God, there's a God. And then you get to the very being that was created in the image of God and we point to self. Can you see why God hates pride so much? Can you see why God believes that selfishness and pride is so heinous? All of creation points to him except for the one being that was meant to reflect his image. What about me? Our favorite question. Or why me? Why is this happening to me? Or, why not me? These are the wrong questions. Believe me, I have personally been feeling the weight of this text. Praying for weeks, one of the advantages of being on a team of preachers is that you get to study the passage for weeks instead of just maybe seven days. But for weeks, I've been praying for God to kill a desire in me to be self-absorbed. I Pray that you're joining me in that. We were made for greatness as Jesus defines it. And the one who defines all things, because he created all things, defines greatness as humility. He defines greatness by the word humility. The humble are great in God's eyes not the proud, not the self-absorbed. You want to be great? We need more humility. We need more humility. And this is Jesus' continual lesson. Look at verse 25 with me. He said to them, the kings of the Gentiles lorded over them and those who have authority over them are called benefactors. But it is not this way with you but the one who is greatest among you must become like the youngest and the leader like the servant. Our second point, our sub-point today is Jesus is patient with us. Jesus is patient with us as he calls us to holiness. Point number two is Jesus is patient with us as he calls us to holiness. Now this is not explicit in the text. It's just an observation But notice that even though the disciples are acting like Pharisees, Jesus does not treat them like Pharisees. He doesn't talk to them like Pharisees. He doesn't call them whitewashed tombs, you pit of vipers, what's the matter with you? He's not talking to them like Pharisees. He's not harsh with them. He's patient. He's gentle. He's long-suffering. I want you to see your Savior right now and how he responds to these disciples' self-absorbed hearts. We know from the gospel accounts that this is not the first time Jesus has given them this lesson. Any parents in the room have to give the same lesson to their kid the fifth time in one day, and you're saying it just like you said the first time? Patient, not harsh, not quick-witted, but gentle. I thought this was so encouraging to me as I often think, as I fall short of this, particularly in this category. And in areas of life where I fall short of being what I believe a Christian should be. And I see the way God responds to me in my mind. It's different than what I saw here. So this was encouraging to me. He's not harsh with me. He's not harsh with you. He's different with you than he is the Pharisees. For me, I often see God as maybe angry with my sin, which is true. That is true because he is holy and he hates sin. But I often envision that anger is displayed as maybe a distant dad. Someone who just kind of keeps me at arm's reach and he's gonna really make me pay for it. Or he's disgruntled with me. Or he's just so disappointed in me. But I was encouraged to see Jesus be gentle with his elect. I was encouraged to see Jesus with those who are his, with those for whom he will die for, for those for whom he chose. I was so encouraged by his grace, his patience, his love, and his, really his pursuit of them his pursuit to disciple them, to continue to teach them. So I hope, I hope you're encouraged too that if you feel that you fall short of the mark of where a believer should be, I want you to hear this, that if you belong to Christ, if you belong to Christ, he is gentle with you. He's not chide at you. He's not screaming at you to get it right. He doesn't desire to put his thumb on you. He loves you with a love that you have never known apart from the cross of Christ. And he loves you with the deepest, most infinite love, and he's gentle with you. He's gentle with you. He will not be harsh with you. So don't hear those words of harshness as he speaks to you through his word. Hear them as gentle, loving corrections. Because while he is... Gentle and patient, he's also eager to disciple you towards another way. He's eager to disciple you towards another way, just as he is with these disciples. Watch as Jesus is gentle and patient, he's also quick to tell them to be different. He's quick to tell them to be different. He's quick to show them that they are to be distinct from Gentiles. We should understand Gentiles as those who are non-believers or not God's people. And they were called to be distinct from the Gentiles. See, Gentiles seek power. Gentiles seek authority. Gentiles seek praise. In fact, this is what the word benefactor means. Benefactor means ones who do good. And it was a kind of a self-proclaimed title of Gentile authoritarian people. Gentile authorities, what they would do is they would climb their way to power by usually stepping on the heads of other people to where they were really poor and they got where they were by making them low, and then they'll throw them a few breadcrumbs and say, see how good I am to you? I'm a benefactor. You should be thankful. That's the way the Gentiles are, but he calls us to be different. He displays a stark contrast between those who love self and those who love God. He's patient, but there's a hard dividing line here that he calls us to. He does not accept our sin But he also does not desire to leave us in that condition. He seeks to change us. He calls us to be holy. Verse 26. Verse 26, he says, But it is not this way with you. They lord it over the people. You come under the people. It is not this way with you. You are to be different. You are to be distinct. You are to be other than the world. You're to be in stark contrast to the world. All this seeking praise that you're doing, all of this honor seeking that you're doing, all of the best seat seeking that you're doing, this is the way of the Gentile. This is the way of the Pharisee. This is not who you are. Every Christian should hear that right now. Even if you're prone to act like that, it's not who you are. Not anymore. God has changed you. He has made you new. Jesus is calling them in us to holiness. And I don't mean this is a grit your teeth, pick yourself up by your bootstraps, and just stop sinning. That is not what the call to holiness is. But he is calling them to be great. That's what it means. He's calling them to be great. He's calling them to greatness. And growing in greatness means growing in humility. This is the mark of sanctification am I growing in sanctification? The answer to that, am I growing in humility? Am I growing in humility, which means to consider others as more important than yourself. Humility is not thinking less of yourself. It's not degrading yourself. It is thinking of yourself less and others more. It's about the amount of time and effort you focus on yourself versus others. This means that we are called to grow. That's what the process of sanctification is. We're to grow in our desires. Our desires should be growing and changing all the time to see God glorified and people loved. I can't think of anything more distinct and separate from the world than that. People that love God and love people. I can't think of anything more distinct and separate from the world than that. And that is, by definition, is holiness. Be holy as I am holy, God says. Love him, love people. Think of yourself less. Question is, do I do that? Am I growing in that way? Am I growing in sanctification? Am I really growing in my love of others more than me? Do you? Do you love other people more than you love yourself? That's what, Paul, that's what Paul says to do in Philippians 2. Consider other people as more important than yourself. Do we pursue this? The question is, you might be asking, is how? No, I don't. But how, how does this change in me? I hope you're asking that question. How does this change in us? And I believe that Jesus answers that here in verse 27. Verse 27, he says, for for who is greater? Who is greater, the one who reclines at the table or the one who serves? Is it not the one who reclines at the table, but I am among you as the one who serves. But I am among you as the one who serves. 7.3. we must must avert our eyes off of self and onto Jesus. The answer is not to avert our eyes off of self and onto other people like you might have thought. The the, The key is to avert our eyes off of self and onto Jesus who will show us what to do. The distinction between Luke 9's lesson when they were arguing and Luke 22's lesson when they're arguing is that Jesus is going to go from telling them how to be great to showing them how to be great. He's going to go from telling them to showing them. Again, Jesus takes the eyes of their heart which are currently inward focused and he seeks to realign them off of the world, off of the seat of the table, off of the high ranking position and he wants to refocus their eyes onto him. He's saying look to Jesus. Right? Again and again and again and again, Jesus is constantly redirecting their eyes towards Him. Meaning, you will never grow by merely looking inward. You will never grow by merely looking inward and fighting sin on your own. There will never be true victory over sin by merely looking inward. Rather, we are to look to the King of kings and Lord of lords who conquered your sin and promises to change you. You look to Him. You look to Jesus, the one whom we desire to be like, don't we? The greatest man, our God in the flesh, Jesus Christ. We look to Jesus as the one whose image we want to be conformed into. That's what sanctification is, to be conformed into his likeness, growing in Christ's likeness. So Jesus is saying, look at me. Look at me. I created the world, and I wash your feet. I created the world, and I wash your feet. I serve you bread as you recline at the table. I serve you wine as you recline at the table. This is true greatness. Humble, low, servant, others-oriented hearts. That's true greatness. Of course, we know that the ultimate serving that he did would be on the cross. Oh, how he served us on the cross as he gave his body for you. And his blood shed for you as he took your place in suffering and in death, that you may have eternal life. He did that. He did that for you. He served us and he still serves us. He has not stopped serving us. He serves us all the time. He continues to wash your feet, meaning He continues to forgive and forgive and intercede and intercede for you. He continues to serve us by keeping us. In fact, the only reason, if you are a believer in Christ today, the only reason you believe is because He regenerated you. He served you in, re- in the regeneration of your heart. He gave you eyes to see. He gave you faith to believe. And the only reason you will wake up tomorrow still believing is because he holds on to you. Oh, how he serves you. He serves you by filling you with his spirit. He fills you with his spirit who teaches you. He reproves you. He trains you. He directs your minds where Jesus He produces, He produces holiness in you. He serves us minute by minute, hour by hour, day by day. He gives, He gives and gives and gives, even to unbelievers. All of the common graces that we see and have in this world that we all share in. Eyes that see. Taste buds that can taste good food. Grace that's serving you. Legs that can walk eyes that can see in color, lungs that can breathe, air that fills the unbeliever's lungs for one more day so that they might have a chance to repent and believe. All grace for them. God serves and serves and serves. All he does is serve all the time. You want to be like God? You want to grow in Christ's likeness Then look to him. Look at how he serves you. Be thankful for how all God serves you. Grow in gratitude and and understanding of the love of Christ for you and then go in that love and serve others just as he has served you. The love of Christ should humble you more than anything. As you recognize how undeserving of it you are and I am. This means wash each other's feet. That's what he said in John 13. As I've loved you, so go and love one another. Wash each other's feet. That means point each other towards the forgiveness of Christ. Point each other towards the forgiveness of Christ. Consider your brothers and sisters' life. And this is what Jesus' point is. In the context of the body, in context of the church, consider your brothers and sisters' life and needs as more important than your own. As Paul would say in Romans 12, outdo one another in showing honor. Outdo one another in showing honor. Are you feeling competitive? You got a competitive spirit? Good, good. Outdo one another in showing honor and kindness and love and gentleness to one another. Regard your home as not your own, but for the use of the other's. Regard your car as not your own. Regard your talents and your gifts as not your own. Regard your time as not your own. Regard your money as not your own. Regard your life. Your whole life is not your own. It belongs to him. He calls you to give it to him by serving one another. All of it. All of it is for the body of Christ. Serve one another. Pray for one another. Rebuke in love one another. Weep with those who weep. Rejoice with those who rejoice. Serve one another, not just in hard times, not just in desperate times. But pray for one another's sanctification on a random Tuesday when there's not an obvious need, because there's still needs, even if it's not obvious to you. Pray for one another. Think and meditate on the body and ask God to give somebody a name in your mind that you can pray for and then reach out to them and let them know. That's so awesome. I find that so encouraging when that happens to me. Let me ask you this How often do you demonstrate concern for your brother or sister's sanctification? Their killing of sin. Maybe sin you don't even know that they're struggling with, but you know that they're human. You know they're not fully sanctified in this life yet. How often do, does a brother or sister, and in this body come to mind where you're just praying that God would grow them in holiness, show them Christ, that I love them, and that's what's best for them. Potentially good discipline that I personally even want to start doing is that in my personal time with the Word and as I pray, I want to start outward. I tend to start with me, wife, kids, and then if there's time, others. A new discipline I want to personally start doing is to start outward. Start with the persecuted church. Start with the believers in other countries. Start with unbelievers around the world. Work my way into my country, my community, my church, my family, and then me that my mind may be more pushed and realigned towards thinking of others more than myself. A new commandment I give you, Jesus says in John 13, that you love one another, even as I have loved you, that you also love one another. This is how all men will know that you're my disciples, by your love for one another. This is how he loved us. He gave himself for us. So he calls you to give yourself to one another and in doing so you serve him you love him and you glorify him but he also did something for us that we cannot do for one another he granted us a kingdom only he can do that it's his kingdom it's his seat And he did that he granted us a kingdom a future hope that brian talked about as he lettuce and music this morning, a a future hope that God will rule and reign and us with him forever. Verse 28, he says, you are those who have stood by me in my trials. And just as my father has granted me a kingdom, I grant you that you may eat and drink at my table in my kingdom, and you will sit on thrones judging the 12 tribes of Israel. Jesus pointing them to himself and calling them to be like him after he does this, and I love this, he encourages them again. I've just called you to go low. I'm going to show you where you'll be exalted. Sub point four is this, the last shall be first. The last shall be first. Meaning, Jesus is calling them to suffering today. loneliness today, glory tomorrow. That's the promise. That's the promise that we cling to and should see. And the encouragement that we should see here is that it's last today, first tomorrow. Humble today, exalted tomorrow. Judged by the world today, judging the world tomorrow. Jesus encourages them that they have stood the test of trial so far. Meaning, he had 500 disciples, then down to 70, down to about 13 or so now maybe 12 or 11 now they've been slowly scattering they these 11 have stood the test so far there's more to come though there's more to come Jesus says that you have stayed with me you have stood with me in my trials there's more to come the father he's saying has granted to me a kingdom He's granted to me a kingdom, it's mine, it's my table, it's my banquet, and I, will, and I will earn this for you and myself through suffering. Just as the Father granted me, I grant it to you. It is a gift, we do not earn it. The kingdom and eternal life is not earned by us. It is earned by Christ. We receive it by faith. And the road of faith is walking in this life in a world that hates you through tribulation, through pain, through suffering, into eternal life one day. The road to eternal life, though earned by Christ, is marked with humility and lowliness and suffering in this life, but in the end, glory to come. This is Jesus' encouragement to his disciples and lesson to them, again, in the last few hours before his death. This is what he wants them to cling to. Serve one another. Love one another. Be light in the world in this way. The kingdom that you believe is just a few days away is not coming yet, not in that way. So for now, it's actually going to be glorious humility. Glorious, great, awesome, God-honoring humility. Later, glorious exaltation to come. Paul would agree with this in Acts 14. As he's going from town to town, preaching the gospel, he's getting beaten, he's getting persecuted. He comes out of it, he goes right into another city and does it again. And then he says this in verse 22, strengthening the souls of the disciples and encouraging them to continue in the faith, saying, through many tribulations, we must enter the kingdom of God. It is through many tribulations we must enter the kingdom of God. Paul would say this again in 2 Timothy. To his brother Timothy, chapter 2, it says, it is, it is a trustworthy statement. For if we died with him, we will also live with him. If we endure, endure what? Comfort? If we endure, we will also reign with him. So there is also, there's a reigning for the disciples. There's a reigning for us. We will reign with Christ. Paul would say in Romans 8 that we are fellow heirs with Christ, fellow heirs of the whole world, provided we suffer with him. Provided we suffer with him, that we may be glorified with him his glory to come. What this means is that to reign with Christ is is going to be as it was supposed to be in the beginning. Mankind, with Christ the man ruling at the head over all creation. So now all of man with Christ at the head will will rule in creation and it will happen in the kingdom to come and all creation will look to us and they will glory, but not in us, in God for what he has done. They will look to you and they will say, praise God for what he has done. So all praise will run right through you and into the Savior. And you will love it. You will love it. And it will be this way for all of eternity. And so we see that Jesus desires to point us to his love. We see that he desires to point us to his love for us, his pursuit of us, his continuous serving of us, which I believe should produce in us a steadfast faith that pursues humility that pursues self-denial and a willingness to endure suffering. It is a faith that results in the end, eternal life, reigning with him in glory. The kingdom is coming. The king is coming. The table has been set. Your seat is reserved. But for now, for now you live in a world that hates God and his people and love's self, our calling is to be different than them, to be like Christ instead, to be separate, looking to him, loving him, and serving the body that we may display his great love to.